Right. Well, we have arrived at Luke 19. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 19. We're actually, I kind of figured it out. I think we're going to finish Luke probably next spring sometime. Um, and then I don't know what I'm going to preach during the summer, but in the fall, uh, I'm going to start into Genesis. So just so you know that, that's what's on the far horizon. Salvation is really the most important issue of all, you know, if you have people coming to you for counseling and they have marriage problems, their children are disobeying or, you know, let's say they're having financial issues. All those things really pale in comparison to the grand issue of whether or not they're on the way to heaven. Because as Jesus said, what profits a man if he were to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? And the implied answer is it wouldn't profit him at all. You know, what momentary pleasure what power, what fame, you know, what material possessions in this life is worth having and then perishing for all eternity. As Thomas Watson said, who would be so foolish as to trade a drop of pleasure for a sea of wrath? Salvation is so important that it's a constant theme of Scripture. It's really the theme of Scripture. I mean, God is right up there as kind of like the big subject. But apart from just the glory of God, and surely salvation is the the next biggest theme. Because the whole Scripture tells us about Christ and God's plan of redemption. And in this section of Luke, what's neat about it is you see that Luke, because Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, collects a whole group of stories about salvation, some parables and teachings and episodes in Jesus' life so that people will know this is what happens when a person is saved or this is what happens when a person is not saved. So we have a very good collection of stories that we've been looking at just to learn about salvation. We have seen that really um, there are kind of two classes of people. There's one class, which is kind of like the the proud, self-righteous Pharisee or the idolatrous, money-worshipping, rich, young ruler or maybe one of these people who is proud and self-trusting. That's one group. They don't get to heaven. Then there is another group, which is like the broken, humble, repentant tax collector in the temple. Or maybe like those who have childlike faith. Or maybe somebody who is exceedingly rich, like the rich young ruler, but who is actually saved. You say, well, who is that? Well, we're going to find out this morning. Our text is about a very rich man who comes to salvation. You know, in Luke chapter 13, verse 24, Jesus speaks of unbelievers, uh, a certain class who who seek to enter the kingdom of heaven, but they're not able. Well, why are they trying to get in? Well, they want to get in because they want fire insurance or or maybe they want to add a little bit of their works or they want to redefine Jesus or they want to add to Jesus's accomplishments a little bit of their own. There's a lot of reasons people seek Jesus, but they're not seeking him in really a God honoring way, not a saving way. In John chapter six, verse 26, Jesus says uh, that some sought him. Because they wanted to see a miracle and get a meal. 
So there are ungodly reasons for seeking Christ. And a lot of people seek him for those churches are full of people like that. They want their consciences appeased. They want people to think they're moral. They grew up in the church and that's what they're used to. There's a lot of people who come to church and even gather week by week who are, quote, seeking Jesus, but they're not seeking him in a saving way. Paul says in Romans 3.11, there is none who seeks after God. Not even one. Now think about that. There is none who seek after God. And, and a lot of times when people hear that, they're thinking, well, I don't know what that means, but I sought him. You know, I don't know what Paul meant by that. I know he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I know this is the word of God. And maybe there's some reason, but I can tell you from my own experience that I had a hunger for God. I began to pursue God. I started going to church. I started reading my Bible and then I came to salvation. So I sought him. And here's a very important lesson to learn. Never, ever base your doctrine off of your experiences. That is a huge, huge error. Because Satan is willing to give you experiences to lead you astray. A lot of people will say, well, I know what the Bible says, but, and when they hear the but, that's really kind of the the lever of the toilet flushing. (laughs) And all those scriptures are now swirling away. And then in place with that is what? Well, what happened to me is, or what I experienced Listen, Satan will come on the scene with lying false signs and wonders to deceive who? who? Even the elect, if it were possible. So even the elect will be tempted to believe lies that back up false doctrine. So we must be very careful that when we base our doctrine, we base it off the scripture. Well, the problem is, is what do you do with a text that says there are none who seek after God when your experience says, I did. See, that's the issue, isn't it? That is the issue. Well, what Paul is speaking about is men on their own, unaided by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit. They never seek God. It isn't until God's spirit moves in a person's life, begins to draw a person to Christ, that that person then all of a sudden starts getting a clue. Well, they have no idea that the Holy Spirit is working in their life. They have no idea that the grace of God is working in their life. All they know is all of a sudden they're interested. And they come. And so from their perspective, I sought God. But what they don't know is no one does that unless God, by his grace, draws them. And so this morning, we are going to see a man who is really irresistibly drawn, a very unlikely person. And this this guy is one of those guys that in the town of Jericho, people thought, well, there's a lot of people who could be saved, but not that guy. He is so wicked. He is such a scoundrel. He is such a traitor that surely he is outside the pale, the possibility of God being saved. And we'll see that as we look at our text. Sometimes we get to the place in our life where we think, well, you know, um, I just wish that I could could find somebody, somebody who truly wanted to seek Christ. And I could witness to him. You ever feel that way? Just somebody who was like hungry. And we need to keep in mind that the only time, the only way that happens, the only times that happens is when God's grace is working in a person's life and then they just 
they get a hunger. They get a thirst for Christ. And he draws sinners to himself. He grants them repentance. And so Jesus in our text is passing through Jericho. Remember last week he was, he was with old blind Bartimaeus. He's on his way in and on his way in. He sees the blind man. Now he's in the middle of the city. And Jericho is very prosperous because it's a major trade route. Anybody trying to come over what doesn't cross the Dead Sea, they would go around it. And right at the top of the Dead Sea is where Jericho is. So it's kind of an intersection, a good travel place where you can get across the Jordan River, where you can go down into the Jordan Rift and out the other side without going up a super steep cliff. And so it's a great place. And so it's hot and very arid there but there's a lot of water so there's palms and dates and and uh, at that time they had a balsam trade there which was very prosperous I mean a lot of money was coming in which means there was a lot of taxes to collect and so Jesus is in the midst of this city and what you need to realize is that Jericho is about 18 miles from Jerusalem that pretty much there's hardly anything between Jericho and Jerusalem. If you've been to Israel, you know this. You're in Jericho. You basically go up a steep, windy road through dusty hills, which is like nothing but little dried pieces of twigs on them. I mean, there is rocks and nothing. There's nothing between Jericho and Jerusalem, except when you get towards right up at the very top, there is the Mount of Olives. And when you're on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, you get to this little town called Bethany, Bethany. And Bethany then is on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And when we talk mountains here, we're not talking like, you know, the Colorado Rockies. We're talking about big hills. Okay. That's what a mountain is. Um, so you go up this big hill and there's this village. And at the top, you have the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascends. And just over the other side, not into a huge valley or anything, not like even these mountains over here, just down into this valley is the Kidron Valley. And on the, the western slope, you have this um, um, Garden of Gethsemane. And right in, and you just go on the other side. And there's Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem. So we're very close. We're about just one day's walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. And people would make that walk in just one day. They would just walk there in one day. So what you need to realize is Jesus is passing through Jericho. He's going to make this one-day journey and he's going to probably stay at Bethany because that's where Lazarus, uh, who he raised from the dead, lived in Martha and Mary. And that seems to be his point of uh, kind of his place during his Passion Week. And then the next day, he's going to go into his triumphal entry. And a week later, he's going to be dead. So probably from our text right now, Jesus has about eight days to live. And, you know, I know I've been telling you he's on his way to the cross. He's on his way, he's on his way. And you kind of go, yeah, 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 it's never going to happen. Well, you know, we're going to have a parable here. And then he's going to be in his triumphal entry. We're just approaching his death. And so Jesus is winning sinners to Christ. He's going after them. And so follow along in your Bible as I read Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass that way. 
When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for today I must stay at your house. Now, um, he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because he, too, is a son of Abraham. But the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Pray with me. Father, we want to thank you for this text. We want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the demonstration of what you can do even in a rich man's life. Father, we are so grateful for your word and for the Holy Spirit helping us understand it. We pray that it goes forth with power this morning so that every one of us leaves here changed, that we are either made uh, a little more into the image of Christ if we already know you, and if not, that some this morning would come to repentance and faith and be born again like the man in the text before us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. From this text, I want to point out four admonitions, four admonitions that accompany true salvation so you can praise God, so you can glorify God because of his transforming grace in your life. And if you don't know Christ, that you might be able to come to him because today is always the day of salvation, never tomorrow. The first thing we see in the text is this. And we need to get a glimpse of Jesus. Look at verse one. And he entered Jericho and was passing through. Remember, last week he was approaching. Now he's going through the city. And verse two says, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, since Jericho was extremely prosperous, they would have lots of tax collectors who were constantly collecting taxes. Zacchaeus was not merely a tax collector. He was the chief of them. So he probably not only collected taxes himself and collected a little more than he needed to, but he also probably took a little from the men who gave him taxes. So he was raking in the dough left and right. He was exceedingly rich being in this position. And of course, the Jews... When they looked at tax collectors, would look at them with contempt. Why? Because here the, the, the Jew is looking at this tax collector who's also a Jew, but he's become a traitor. He's bought his franchise from Rome. He's collecting taxes from them. And he's living in this big house up in the hill. And there, every time they look at that house, they remember that man lives in that house because he's robbing me. He's plundering his brother's. And so there was just a, just a hatred, a despising of those wretched tax collectors. And we've seen how throughout the gospels, whenever, you know, somebody, Jesus wants to use it like an extreme example, it's the tax collector who's in the example, or you want to diss somebody, you call them a tax collector because that's there that the, the low, they're like the scum and the bottom of the social barrel. And this man is not just one of them. He's the chief. Look at verse 3, and Zacchaeus was trying to see Jesus and was unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And so here comes this man. I mean, one of the things that's good about being tall is I can see over people. 
And uh, what's really great is, is I can see everybody in my family. We just walk around and look over everybody's heads and go, oh, there's my daughter. There's my son over there. It's great. But if you're short, all you see is legs and backs, you know, and you're wondering what's happening all the time. And that's what happened with Zacchaeus. He wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. Surely he had heard about him. He knew Jesus had done miracles. Jesus has been doing miracles, by the way, for three years. So he knows about this man. Maybe he's heard he's a prophet. Maybe he's heard he's the Messiah, that he can heal all manner of disease and sicknesses. And his teaching is just amazing. It's amazing. And so he wants to get a glimpse also because he's heard that Jesus is actually a friend of people like me. He's a friend of prostitutes and and tax collectors and thieves. He, He actually eats with people who other Jews won't even have anything to do with. And so he's very curious and he wants to see, but he can't see because he's too short. You also need to keep in mind that Jesus is going to die in a few days. And what is the, can you remember the, the feast that was going on when Jesus died? It was what, what feast? Passover. So all the Jews from all around the Mediterranean basin are all coming to Jerusalem and this, these huge trails, the roads are busy with people. And surely a lot of these people have attached themselves to Jesus's kind of crowd that always follows him. And now he's got an exceedingly large crowd and they're following him and they're going to soon go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover, one of those pilgrim feasts. But Zacchaeus wants to get a glimpse of Jesus. So look at verse four. He ran on ahead, climbed into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Now, I just want you to know when you're older, you don't, you don't run. Uh, running is uncool. Um, you know, uh, especially, you know, it just it was undignified and especially to climb up into a tree. You know, I mean, maybe if you're a kid, you can climb up into a tree. But, you know, when you've got yourself, you know, kind of a long, cloaky dress looking thing. I mean, you know, you don't go tree climbing. But, you know, Zacchaeus didn't have anything to lose. Everybody despised him already. He had no reputation. He had no honor among the people. They already despised him. And so what was there to lose? He He wanted to see Jesus. And so... He looks ahead, sees the sycamore tree. And if you're wondering, what is, now, what does the sycamore tree look like? Um, well, uh, have you ever been to the redwood forest where they have those huge, giant trees? They're nothing like that. Um, if you go over to the park here, Riverside, Victory, Sonora, and there's a park on each side, those trees are sycamores. They have a mottled bark, leaves that kind of look like maples. They have, there's some of them are all bent. You've seen them over there. Now, those are sycamore trees. And so he sees one of those and he just cruises right up one of the branches and he's, he's up. And now he can see in the crowd, this huge crowd, and there's probably a little circle in the middle. And there's Jesus and he can't hear what Jesus is saying, but he can see him. And he wants to see him. And who knows what was going on in his mind. Is he, he was eager. Something was going on. We know God's grace is working on him. He's being drawn to Christ. And so he has this intense interest in Christ. He wants to see him. He wants to get a glimpse of Jesus. And so there he is up in the trees, looking through the branches, trying to find a good porthole through all the leaves so he can spy on Jesus. And Jesus is slowly approaching Zacchaeus, I think, like a lot of very wealthy people, is pretty hollow inside. 
You know, there's very few people who can really handle a lot of wealth. They get proud, they get demanding, they look down on other people, they think because I have money and you don't, I'm better than you. It's very corrupting. And that's why it's so hard. That's why Jesus said, well, it's easier to stuff a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so there's this tension, this tension now inside of Zacchaeus's heart where he's tired of being hated. He's tired of being despised. I mean, you know, he's got the big house. He's got hordes of money. He's got all the best food he could possibly eat. You know, he drives the best camel. (laughs) And he's got everything. And though he has all of these things, he's hollow inside. Because no matter how much world, how much pleasure, how much of this life you stuff in and how much you try to feed your flesh, it leaves you more and more empty. And he's one of those people. And he's looking at Jesus. He's probably thinking to himself, if I could just talk to him, but he would never give somebody like me the time of day. Jesus said in John six forty four, no one, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That's a good verse to just meditate on. You mean no one? can come to Jesus unless the father who sent Jesus draws him to salvation. Well, that that's exactly right. And Jesus goes on to say, and all that the father gives to me, come to me and I lose none and raise them up on that last day. There is this irresistible sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners, which is able to overcome. The word draw is used of fishermen drawing in nets or somebody drawing a sword out of a scabbard. It is to apply force in such a way that the thing moves in the direction desired. Like pulling a mule that may be stubborn and yet you're able to bring them. Draw them. Martin Luther commented on our passage saying, quote, the drawing is not like that of the executioner who draws the thief up the ladder to the gallows, but it is a gracious allurement such as that of a man whom everybody loves and to whom everybody willingly goes, end quote. You see, our wills don't want to come to God before God's grace shows up. We are like those that John 3 speaks of, that the wicked do not come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. We don't want to come to the light. We don't like the light. But then when God's grace enters in, all of a sudden we think, you know, the light is a good idea. And it's not like God overthrows our will. He changes our will so that we desire salvation when before we did not. And if you know Christ, you know this. I can remember times in my life earlier on when, you know, I didn't want to have anything to do with church, anything to do with preaching, especially. Um, you know, if you if I was turning the radio and I came across a preacher, the dial would move extra quickly. <laughs> because that guy might get some of his words on me, you know. Um, I didn't want any of that. You know, I don't want anybody, you know, preaching at me. I don't want any religion. And you know how it is. And then all of a sudden there comes a place in your life where the only thing that matters is Jesus. I mean, if you grew up in a Christian home, you might not have experienced this. But if you came to Christ later, there was a there was a critical point in your life where you had to get a glimpse of Jesus. 
Like the song says, you, you, you pray, you know, open my eyes, Lord. I want to see Jesus. To reach out and touch him, to show him I love him. Open my ears, Lord. And help me to listen. Open my eyes, Lord. I want to see Jesus. And if you haven't experienced that, if you don't have that passion to see Christ, to stand before him blameless with great joy. I mean, if you just aren't hungry inside to just be with Jesus, then you need to pray. You need to seek God and say, give me that desire. Grant me that repentance. Give me that faith. Draw me by your grace. Save me. Secondly, know that Jesus seeks sinners. Look at verse five. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay at your house. I mean, you can just imagine this, right? Here's Zacchaeus. He's short. He can't see in the crowd. He runs up this tree. He's kind of looking through the leaves and he's going, oh, here he comes. Here comes the crowd. They're going right by the tree. And Jesus is talking to this person. He's talking to this person. You know, he's got his disciples trying to hold people back. So he has a little breathing room. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops in the middle of the road. And he turns and he looks up. And I'm sure there's some in the crowd are going, hmm. He saw him. That scoundrel Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector and robber of the people of Israel. And they're probably thinking to himself, oh, this is going to be great. Jesus is going to blast him. Jesus is going to command fire to come down out of heaven on him. Because surely Jesus knows what kind of man this is. And then Jesus stops. He turns. He looks Zacchaeus in the eyes and says, Zacchaeus. Now that alone would have kind of freaked you, right? I mean, what if you're going along and you don't, you know, here's somebody. And all of a sudden he turns and says your name like, How did you know? Jesus knows those who are his. And he then gives the command, hurry, come down, because I must stay at your house. This is the only place recorded in the Gospels where Jesus invites himself to someone's house. (laughs) He was invited and went, but this is the only time he commands somebody, you're having me over for lunch or whatever. I'm coming to your house. Now, I don't know about you, but imagine, you know, you're, you're over at Starbucks and you're getting your triple tall whatever with a pinch of this and, you know, lots of whipped cream, but 2% milk just to make sure you save a little bit on calories, a little caramel dribbled or whatever you do. And you're sitting there and some guy says, hey, and calls out your name and says, I'm staying at your house for dinner. I mean, how would you feel about that? It's like, dude, right? I don't know you. And that's what Jesus did. Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house. And look at verse six. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Zacchaeus obeyed. Notice he hurried. He's getting down to that tree as fast as he can. He came down. And it says he gladly that is he joyfully ran the way of jesus commandments oh saving grace is working now you know i have people who say well yeah i'm a christian but i don't really want to obey god i don't really want to follow christ i mean i don't want to part from my sins but i'm a christian 
No, no, no. When God's grace gets a hold of you, it's like, what do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? It changes you. It reorients you. Things are different. It's life changing. All of the time your rebellion against God is just dissolved into, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? And even when you blow it, even when you sin, you're convicted and say, I'm sorry. I confess. Okay, fix me. Fix me. I can't seem to get a hold of this myself. Help me. Seeking Christ. Turning from sin. Learning the ways of God. These are really insane things until God's grace enters your life. It's like, are you kidding me? Jesus telling me what to do in every area of my life? No way. I don't want Jesus controlling me. I don't want to have to do whatever the Bible says. And one moment you can just be totally opposed to that. And the next moment you can be, that is like the best thing to do. That is the best thing to do. I don't know if you've ever been discouraged when you've shared Christ with people. You know, sometimes I just, I I pray, I pray, Christ, could you just like let so-and-so lead somebody to the Lord? You know, sometimes we, um, you're out there, you're sharing Christ maybe with a neighbor or with a relative, a daughter, a son, a parent or whatever, and they don't come to Christ. And it's sometimes you can be kind of discouraged because you think, you know, Lord, I mean, you said the fields are white with harvest. I, mean, I can't even harvest a grain of wheat. I can't even get a single speck. You know, I don't know what's wrong. Is am I doing something wrong? Is that that does that not apply anymore? And you can be discouraged because, you know, you weren't leading thousands to Christ. But don't be discouraged. You need to realize that Jesus wasn't saying when he said that, that everybody who shares the gospel is going to lead multitudes to me. He wasn't saying that. I mean, picture, you know, imagine what it's like to be God and you're looking down on the earth, you know, just imagine uh, Google Earth. So you're looking down and you see the globe there. Now, imagine if there was a red push pin, every place in the world that that represented somebody who was going to come to Christ, one of the elect. And you zoom up in the United States, you zoom up on other countries. Imagine how many push pins you would see there from God's perspective. They were, the, the earth would just be full of them, right? White with harvest. That's the whole idea. And at God's good time, that person's going to come to Christ and he may come to Christ through you. So don't, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged that because you have shared with that coworker or friend or neighbor or daughter or whatever, that they haven't immediately come to Christ. And I know what you're probably thinking. Well, can't, you know, Jesus just like put a little like push pin on their hand or forehead. And, you know, we, we're the only ones who can see it. And you kind of go around looking. And when you see it, you say, hey, I need to tell you something. And I would really help our evangelistic, you know, efforts. And we could have like 100% success, but then you wouldn't need to trust God. And then you wouldn't fulfill the whole purpose of sharing the gospel. You need to realize God can save people without you. And he has. I mean, some people have just found a tract in the gutter, picked it up and gotten saved. Some people have seen a verse written on a wall or whatever. There have been people who have been saved in a lot of ways without the agency of people. He doesn't need you, but he wants to use you so that you can be part of his 
salvation plan. He wants to bless you. Imagine being in heaven and talking to people that you were instrumental in the leading to Christ. Is that going to be cool or what? Imagine, you know, you talk to that boss or coworker and they say, you know what? I've, I've heard the whole Jesus died for me and rose again thing. I really don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm glad you're excited about your faith, but forget it. And you don't know that you have planted a seed in that man and it's going to sit there for years and years. And then something's going to happen in his life. His wife's going to die. His children's going to, you know, die in a car accident. There's this divorce and financial collapse. Who knows? He's going to be so broken. And then that seed that you planted there is going to sprout. And that's going to be the mechanism God uses to bring him to Christ. And you're going to get to heaven and you're going to say, whoa, what are you doing here? And he's going to go, I came to Christ. And he said, man, how did that happen? He says the same way it happened to you. I believed in the gospel and you were the first one to share. Do you remember that? I'm sorry. I was so mean to you. But however, God used that. God used that. And so don't despise the day of small things. God knows also that some of you, if you, you know, just went out there and led a whole bunch of people to Christ, you would get proud. You come sauntering in. Look at my belt. See those 39 notches in shape of a cross? Every one of them I led to the Lord. Now, this first cross here, let me tell you about them. Do you have some time? Let me tell you about the story, how I did this. You know, that's what a lot of people would do. Just like some people can't handle money. So there's some people who just can't handle the super neat, valuable experience of leading people to Christ. And so God says, listen, you're just going to be a seed thrower. You just keep throwing the seed. And uh, you just stay there. And then you have other people like George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody. Man, they're just slaying their ten thousands for Christ. They're like human combines, you know, just chopping into humanity, bringing them in by the truckloads. And you think, "Well, well, how come we can't do that? Because that's God's purpose for them and maybe it's your purpose to plant seeds and you need to remember this that the gospel isn't just for saving people it's like what paul said that the gospel was a aroma of life to some and the stench of death to others and so god may have you share with somebody for the express purpose of condemning them so that on judgment day they will be judged for not receiving the love of the truth so as to be saved it's not a very fun thought but it's true and in heaven you will rejoice in god's justice because that person did have the gospel shared with them and they did reject it and their blood is not on your hands and god is just And so the gospel works both ways. So if you meet with a negative reaction, don't be discouraged. And maybe it should be God's will that that person is going to come to Christ later. That person's going to be judged. Or you'll be able to lead them to Christ later. I mean, there's been so many ways. I've heard so many testimonies, like somebody sharing Christ is somebody, the person getting really mad, and then that person having problems with their, in their life, and then they come back to the very person that they got mad at. And then they say, 
I need to talk to you. Remember what you told me? I, I, I need to talk to you about that some more. And you kind of like, really? Um, again? I thought, I thought you didn't want to talk about that ever again. Well, I changed my mind. And see, the grace of God begins to work on them. And you might be the very instrument that God uses to not only sow the seed, but harvest the wheat. So you need to pray that people are saved, knowing that God is the only one who can save them. Only God can grant repentance. Only God can impart saving grace. Only the Holy Spirit can cause somebody to be a born again. It's your job to get the word out, to do it in the fruit of the Spirit, to show the love of Christ, to live like Christ, and then leave the rest up to God. Look down at verse 10. Uh, We'll skip to the bottom here because this is the punchline, but it relates to this. Jesus says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I mean, are you a sinner? Jesus came to save, save sinners. Are you lost? He came to find sinners. Go to Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost and only those who are lost. If you're sitting out there going, well, Pastor Jack, I'm a pretty good person. Then he didn't come to save you. He didn't come to save those who were pretty good. He didn't come to save the righteous. It is only those who are sick that need a physician. God, remember, saves sinners only. And what are sinners saved from? You know, this is a fun thing to think about. A lot of times if I say to now, if I were to ask you right now, you just fill in the blank. Well, we need saved from you just think about it. Fill in the blank. Okay. Now you you might you might probably put a lot of people would put in there sin. And it's true when we get saved, we will be saved from the we're saved when we come to Christ from the power of sin and later on from the presence of sin. You might have thought Satan or sin and Satan, which is true. We will be saved from that. But you know who we really need saved from is God Himself. God is the judge. The holy judge who by no means will allow the guilty to go unpunished. In this life, he is the savior. As soon as we die, he's the judge. And so what we really need saved from is God himself. And God acts as both people, both judge and savior. And so if you come to Christ in this life, you can be saved from Jesus in the life to come. The judge of the living and the dead. Because he will look at you and say, you can pass because you've been justified. You've been forgiven. You've been cleansed. Your sins have been atoned for because I died for you and you trusted in me. You die not having trusted in Jesus. You get Jesus as judge and you get to be judged by your own good works, which aren't good. If you're willing to admit your sin, your guilt, your rebellion against God and you fly to Christ, he will forgive you. Because he only came to save sinners, to seek and save those who are lost. And if you know Christ, you need to be thankful that though you were one of those wandering sheep and you went your own way, the Lord drew you to himself, opened your eyes, and transformed you by his grace. Third, 
be thankful for all who come to Christ. Look back up at verse 7. Jesus has invited himself to Zacchaeus's house. And then verse 7 says, and when they saw it, they began to grumble. The word grumble means to complain or to express discontent out loud, to murmur, murmur audibly. So what you have here is this huge entourage that is following Jesus. And of course, some of the people who were you know, from diff- different places going to celebrate the Passover probably didn't know who Zacchaeus was. But as soon as Jesus said, I want to come to your house, all the locals would be saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. That guy is the chief tax collector. And pretty soon, all of this rumbling would go through this huge crowd. And they're all like, oh, you've got to be kidding to me. What's wrong with Jesus? I mean, doesn't he know this man is the chief tax collector? Why is he going to his house? And notice in the middle of verse 7, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Imagine that. Is there any other people you can go to? But implied in their statement is what? They are not sinners. And there's some irony here. There's some irony here, some great irony, because though they are following Jesus, the Savior, they don't see themselves as needing a Savior. Think about that. And Jesus, I think, actually uses this incident to separate the sheep from the goats. Because the text says they were all murmuring. That is, the bulk of them were murmuring. But as soon as Jesus says, I'm going to the chief tax collector's house, no respectable Jew would do this. And they would all be forced to pick one of two sides. Either Jesus is blowing it and is sinning by going to the sinner's house or they themselves are in that same category. You know, when someone comes to church who isn't dressed like you, you think they should, doesn't speak like you think has kind of weird mannerisms, maybe is a little bit worldly. Their language is kind of coarse, but you know what? They're seeking Christ and they're trying to find Christ or maybe they've just come to the Lord. Do you look down on them? I had people actually come up to me and go, Pastor Jack, did you see that person out there? It's like, yeah. It's like, well, you know, they're they're like this or they're like that. I mean, why don't you like deal with them? I said, I'm preaching the gospel at them so that they can repent and believe and become not like you. Not censorious and condemning and looking down on other people because they are sinners. Because obviously you're not a sinner. And so Christ didn't come to save you. See, that's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. God doesn't want us to be like the crowd. He wants us to all see ourselves as great sinners. Granted, some sin more than others. And compared to other people... Yeah, that guy may be a little bit higher up in the sin, sinning chain than me. But when you are up in heaven and you're looking down on men, we look like specks and we're all very low and underneath God and his infinite holiness. Remember what we learned from Luke fifteen seven that there is more joy in heaven. More joy in heaven over one sinner who repents Then over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Why? Because they don't get to heaven. 
that, that the fundamental thing that saving grace does in a person's life is get people to see their sin. I have blown it. And you know what's neat about it? Is when God's grace is working in a person's life, you know what they want to do? They want to come clean. I've seen this over and over again. People just, you know, they come to Christ and then their conscience starts working on them. The Holy Spirit's working in the light. They start reading the word of God and they realize, man, I got to come clean. And they've been hiding stuff and they've been doing stuff and they know it's wrong and they know they shouldn't do it. And what's happening is it's like this burden on their heart and they go, I got to come clean. And so they start confessing their sins and asking forgiveness and seeking to be reconciled. And and these are the demonstrations of saving grace in a person's life. But we need to be careful to rejoice and not condemn those sinners that Christ is saving. Because really, we're all sinners. And we're all in the same category of sinner. Fourth and finally, look for true repentance in your life own life. Look at verse eight, where we get a good glimpse of true repentance here. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, just stop there for a moment. The word stopped here as the new American standard has, it is not the best translation. It's better translated. He took his stand or he stood up. Um, that's how the English standard version, the new international version, the new King James version have it. That's the best way to translate it. You've got to picture what's happened here. Jesus has taken this huge crowd of people, this entourage to Zacchaeus's house. And we don't really know when Zacchaeus has come to the Lord, but he's, he's obviously come to the Lord at this point. You'll see, um, whether, whether it just happened when Jesus commanded him to come out of the tree or on the way Jesus talked to him, or maybe they went into Zacchaeus's house for a minute and, you know, they had kind of a little come to Jesus session. We don't know, but what we do know is he's changed now. And so Zacchaeus, when it says he stood up, what it means is there's this huge crowd of people with their arms crossed and their brows furrowed. And they're like, man, that loser. And, and Zacchaeus then stands up probably on a stump or something on a barrel, who knows something to get some height. And he stands up and he declares specifically to Jesus in the hearing of the whole crowd. That's what's going on here. And what does he say? Look at the middle of verse eight. Behold, Lord, half of my possessions, I will give to the poor. Now, the guy is exceedingly rich. So he's now going to take half of his possessions and just give them to the poor. Saving grace has come upon the man. He's different. He's no longer a lover of money. He's no longer enslaved to riches. And this is what happens when God's grace enters a person's life. They get converted. And all of a sudden he realizes, man, I've got so much money. What am I going to do with it all? And his conscience is bothering him because of how he had got that money. And he realizes, you know what? I, I can only drive the such a nice camel. And after that, they just don't get any better. I can only live in so good of a house. And if I get a bigger one, they're just harder to clean and take care of. And I can only eat food that's so, and I'm already round enough. And he's just realizing I've saturated myself in the world and I can't really do anything else. I, I, I've got so much money. I'm just going to die and leave it to a fool. So right off the bat, he just says, he tells the whole crowd speaking to Jesus, I am going to give half of my wealth to the poor. That That's huge. Not only that, 
Not only that, that's not all. Look towards the end of verse 8. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Whoa. Jesus didn't even ask him to do this. He just volunteers. He volunteers. I mean, he was a man of books and records. He knew what he collected from each person, how much was more than he needed to collect. He had records of all the people he robbed. And now he's saying, I am going to give back fourfold restitution. That is what I took for them plus 300% on top of that. He realizes that maybe, yes, he's caused these things in the past that have caused people hardship and suffering. He has robbed from them. Now, what's interesting, if you look at Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, it says that if a man steals and then he voluntarily comes forth, he only needs to pay 20%, one-fifth. So if I stole $100 from you, I'd give you back 120 because I stole it from you. If I voluntarily came forward... That's what the law said. He's going way beyond that because Exodus 22 verse 1 says, if you steal somebody's ox and then you either slaughter it and eat it or you sell it and you're caught, you pay fivefold because oxen at that time were like, you know, a piece of farm equipment. You needed that thing to function. It was like part of your livelihood. Now, if somebody stole something like a sheep, which wasn't, you know, a major part of one's livelihood, but still was worth a lot, and then either slaughtered it and or sold it, then you had to pay back fourfold. And that's what Zacchaeus is voluntarily doing. The stiffest penalty for that kind of crime, he volunteers to pay. You remember what happened when David um, committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed her husband? And then Nathan, the prophet, was sent to confront him. And he told him a little story about the poor man with the little ewe lamb that he loved like a daughter. And there was a rich man with tons of sheep, had lots of money, came and by force took the poor man's ewe lamb from him, slaughtered it and fed it to his guests. And you remember what David said? He said this in 2 Samuel 12, 5 and 6. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. The stiffest penalty of the law for stealing, slaughtering, and or selling someone's sheep. But Zacchaeus, now that saving grace has entered his life, says, I'm giving away half of everything. You know, if if he was had 10 million in today's standards, he said 5 million to the poor. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through my books and every single person I have stole from fourfold restitution. It's huge. It's huge. And you can imagine the effect that this had on Jericho. I mean, just think with me, you know, you've got this, you know, store owner named Abraham and his wife. And all of a sudden here comes Zacchaeus and the wife sees him from a distance and says, honey, hide the shekels. Just leave a few little coins in the in our money box because here comes Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. And so they hide the money real quick and he comes and they're looking and he's got this smile on his face. And they're going, oh, look at him, he's even smiling. <laughs> and as he approaches, he begins to speak, Abraham, I need to talk to you. And they're thinking, okay, 
Why is he being so nice? And where are the thugs that usually accompany him? What kind of trick is this? And they're waiting for his countenance to change and the thugs to come around the corner and the fist to come down and the hard demands for cash to be uttered. But it never happens. It never happens. And Zacchaeus pulls out a bag and he dumps out a whole bunch of money on the table. And he says, I I have wronged you. I have sinned against you. I knew you had a prosperous business and I took more than I was supposed to take. And so I'm coming to you. I'm paying back everything I took beyond what I should have. And I'm paying fourfold restitution. And I want to ask your forgiveness and I hope you can find it in your heart to forgive me. And you can imagine. (laughs) What? I mean, they see, this is the chief tax collector. You're coming to me to give me my money back plus 300% return? Yeah. And when they look at him, they see that his eyes are cast down. They can see the shame on his face. They can see the humility because now he wants to honor God with his life. And so Abraham looks at his wife and And they hug Zacchaeus and they weep and they cry. And says, thank you, brother. And he says, so what has brought about this change of heart? And Zacchaeus says, Jesus. I met a man named Jesus. And he changed me. He's the Messiah. And I believe in him. And this is what he did over and over again. All through. I mean, everybody would ask him, right? Everybody would ask him, what came over you? When the chief tax collector comes to give money back four times as much. And so surely Zacchaeus, though the greatest sinner in all of Jericho, becomes the greatest witness for Jesus Christ. Does God know what he's doing? When you compare him to the rich young ruler, both were rich, both sought Jesus, both talked to Jesus, but only one was saved. The rich young ruler wanted to know what he could do to earn his own salvation. Zacchaeus was under no delusion. He knew he couldn't do anything to earn his own salvation. The rich young ruler saw himself as righteous and having obeyed all of God's commands. Zacchaeus knew he was a great sinner. The rich young ruler hesitated and would not comply with Jesus' request because he loved his money more than God. Zacchaeus voluntarily says half to the poor and fourfold to everybody else I've defrauded. Voluntarily without being asked. The rich young ruler would not part with his money and walked away sad. Zacchaeus obeyed quickly and walked away glad. The the contrast here is so great. And Luke, I think, includes the story here so that we can see Jesus threading a camel through the eye of a needle. So we can see that God can save anybody. And what is impossible with men is not impossible with God. That he can save you. He can save you no matter what you've done. How great a sinner you are. He can transform your life and he wants to do so. 
And then our text concludes, Jesus in verse 9 says, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And that phrase, son of Abraham, is used of, of not just ethnic Israel, but those who are truly know Christ. That this man, though a great sinner, is one of the sons of Abraham. He will be in heaven. And then the great capstone of the text, which we mentioned before, for the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. May we never forget this, that there are people out there that God is going to harvest and he's waiting for you to open your mouth, to share Christ. Some will come easy. Some will come hard. Some will never come. But God wants to use you, believers, as an instrument for all of these things. And for those who don't know Christ, what are you waiting for? Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your mercy and grace in our life. We're thankful for Jesus and his life and dying on the cross for us. And Father, I just thank you for the story of Zacchaeus a great sinner, a notorious sinner, saved by grace, who then surely became one of the greatest witnesses for you in that area. Father, those who are forgiven much, love much. And Father, we are so thankful, so glad that you came to save sinners because we are sinners and we need salvation. Father, if there's people here, and I know there are, who don't know you, who've never came to Christ, may they cry out to Jesus right now. May they admit they are sinners in need of salvation, that they cannot save themselves, and by your grace, transform them, cause them to be born again, that they might have a complete change of life and might give you honor and glory in all that they do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.